you'd all please stand as we enter into the scriptures this morning for our reading. Um, if you have a Bible, you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the same exact place we were last week. If you don't, don't worry about it. The words are going to be on the screen. You can follow along up there. Um, some people are a little bit more comfortable with a paper Bible. Some people are more comfortable with it on their phone. Some people just like to read what I've put together and not do any of that, which is just fine with me. Let's enter into the scripture, starting in verse 1 in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters... Did not, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just a very quick prayer. Father, open up your word to us now. Make our hearts tender to receive. Make your word alive in our spirit this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I have titled it This Week in Weakness and Fear. We've landed in the same text that we had last week because I rambled on for 38 and a half minutes last week. I hope at least productively. Um, but here we are again because we're going to take a look at what it is Paul's mapped out for us. That's why I've titled it In Weakness and Fear. And I think that that's something for us to remember um, in the midst of the world that we live in. And what I want us to take a look and really understand is that big or small, big or small, full of the gifts or having only a few of the gifts evident, a church is only successful if it is on task with its mission and assignment that God has given to that particular body where he has set them down. That's how the church is successful. And we ended last week by reminding ourselves of the primary mission of the church. It's not to obtain as many gifts as we can possibly obtain, but the primary mission of the church as we gather is to glorify God, to be edified and equipped for our mission within this world. That's the purpose of why it is the body of believers gathers on a Sunday morning. See, Paul had written to this church in Corinth, we discovered, to answer questions and to sort out the mistakes and the sin that had simply taken over the community because of their attitudes that they had. Their focus was wrong, and they were spiraling out of control. So he was answering a letter that was written to him. That's what this whole book is about. We have book with chapter numbers and verses and all of that stuff, but really it was a letter to a bunch of people who were really having a hard time with a bunch of things. And he did so, we discovered here, in three ways that we're going to circle our thoughts around this morning that I think are very important for us to understand as we try to engage the world where God has set us down. Three very important things. Revisiting the text with clarity and with purpose this week that we had last week because the three things that he did, he kept the message simple and he kept it focused. All right? So for those of us who want to be impressed with ourselves, Paul's not the guy to go to. He kept it simple and he kept it focused. The second thing that he did, he did so even though he was afraid. We have learned since August that Paul was just a human being, and when he was moved out in the call of God to new places, it unsettled him. It concerned him, and it made him afraid. But he went nonetheless, because that's where God had called him to go, which leads us to the third thing. He was able to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was no other way in which Paul could do the things that he did were he not empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he kept it simple. He did it even when he was unsettled about it, and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. All three things that I suspect each and every one of us, if we're honest, wrestle with and are filled with as well. It's a simple outline, and the truth that it contains drove people to faith wherever Paul went. 
He didn't show up with a bunch of bells and whistles or anything like that because nothing in Paul's preaching was really complicated. It was simply to preach Jesus and the saving grace and the knowledge that comes through knowing him. Is that it? That's it. He didn't go any deeper than that. In other words, his preaching drove people simply to Jesus. He didn't become the main attraction. His purpose was to lead people to this little Jewish carpenter from Nazareth by the name of Jesus. It's important to see here also that Paul was up against the same types of issues that we are confronted with today in our world. I know I touched on this last week, and I'll touch on it again next week. We all need to really get a hold of this and understand this. Paul was not living in a time that was easier and less complicated than what we are living in today. It was as complicated, if not more complicated, than what we are challenged with today in relation to the gospel. But what we have to be careful with as a church community and as a body of believers, and just as individual Christians in the world, is is cultural conformity and cultural capitulation. A big word that I think is pretty cool, but I have a hard time saying it. The reality is it's just giving in to what it is the culture tells us to do. We have to be careful of both of those things. Being conformed to the culture and capitulating to the wishes of the culture. Paul stood out against both of those things and against those eloquent Greek philosophers who would go from town to town who spoke so well while saying very little. Everybody loved to listen to them and all of their big words. And they went on for hours and hours and hours. And they said almost nothing. We don't have any of that going on today. Everybody loves to hear people speak. And they just drone on and on and on. And you walk away going, did you get anything from what that person said? No, I didn't. He lost me at good night. Which was the first two words that he said when we sat down. See, Paul was simple in what he said and how he said it. That's the first thing. Number one, verse two. For I decided... So he made a decision. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, Paul had no desire to make things vague and complicated to understand in order to fit in with people. That wasn't what he wanted. The last thing Paul wanted to be seen as just another guy coming through town with new things, talking all day long while saying absolutely nothing, to add to their many beliefs and trying to fit in. That's not what Paul wanted. See, that would have been to capitulate to the culture, to feel settled in where he was and to try and fit in with what was going on to whatever the believer or whatever it was you wanted to believe within the culture that you lived in. Just don't tell me that that's the way to believe and that that is the only way in which you're to believe. That's not what Paul was doing. He stood out against that mindset. It's the same type of issue we have today. He's dealing with the same environment that we had. A pluralistic culture meaning they believed in anything and they believed in everything. Whatever came down the road, if it seemed cool to them, that's what they believed. He was dealing with self-centeredness and ready to believe anything which validates their personal thinking and their own personal opinion. We'll build a temple for this particular thing because we get enough people who want to do this or enough people who want to do that. Paul was not doing that. To capitulate to the culture becomes very dangerous We lose the truth of the gospel in that. Not only does it mean forsaking the pure gospel for a watered-down version, it can also mean settling for the status quo. Two very dangerous things. When we settle in and we just assume that the culture's right when it tells us exactly what's going on. We don't want to do that. We don't want to settle for the status quo, and we certainly don't want to water down the very simple truth of the gospel of Christ. You see, in other words, here's what's going on. I hear this everywhere I go when I talk to people, that what we have is good enough. 
What we have is good enough. Where we are is just fine with me. I'm very comfortable where I am. We don't need anything else. You know, after all, we are in New England. You know, it's very hard ground to plow in relation to preaching the gospel because we're all pretty hard-headed. Well, maybe I am. The rest of you probably aren't. I don't know. But that's what I hear. This is New England. This is good enough. After all, it's New England. I have little patience with men from Texas who tell me that, oh, after all, it's New England. Go back to Texas, where everything is big, everything is hot, and the cowboys are there, and they're a really bad team. That's for you, Paul. And here's where the mindset leads us. And I'm going to take the time on this because it's important. Because as a presbyter and as a pastor, this is what I see happening, and it's a very dangerous thing. We get in the mindset where it says here, if you're bigger than 50 people or so, you're really doing something wrong. We can never be bigger than 30, 40, or 50 people because if you do, you're doing something wrong. Somehow big churches are compromising the truth of the gospel by the simple fact that they're big. That's one of the goofiest things I've ever heard. Now, perhaps it's true in some instances, but that is not primarily the case. Or you're only successful if you really are big. You see, if you're anything under 100, 200, 300, 500, or 1,000, if you're really big, that's the only indicator that you're successful. Both of those premises are settling for a notion that this is good enough. The game that I've got in town is good enough. Whether it be 500 people or it be 15 people, it's good enough. We're going to settle for that, and this is just our lot in life. After all, once again, it's really good for New England. You're picking up on the fact that I hear that a lot, and it really frustrates me. New England's my home. Born and raised in Massachusetts, spent the last 32 years of my life in Vermont. I love New England. I do understand that we are hard-headed people. And we don't always like to be told what to do, which is why the Holy Spirit needs to work on us to hear what it is he wants from us as his people. We have to really be careful with that. Because you know what? That is not how God thinks. It's not how Jesus thinks, and it's not how the Holy Spirit operates. He doesn't look down here on this little corner of the world and go, mm, a little bit too tough for my work. We're going to have to go somewhere else. It's not how he operates. He doesn't think that way, and we shouldn't think that way either, ever. It's not about size. It's not about how many people we have. It's not about all of those other things. It's about are we being faithful to do what God has called us to do, where he has set us down, within the gifts that he has wired you with. Again, not real complicated. We can overcomplicate it, but that's not what it is we do. See, so I always explain church health and church growth this way. Because, you know, when it comes to this stuff, I'm not a bright guy. I need to keep it simple. So I always ask the question, what does a healthy apple tree produce, given that it's that time of the year? Help me out. What does a healthy apple tree produce? Keep that in mind. Apples. The healthier the tree, the more apples we get, right? Healthy apples, good apples. The more health the tree is, the healthier the apples, the more abundant the apples. So I leave that with you to think on when it comes to church growth as well. It's hard to argue that a healthy apple tree produces healthy apples and more apples. Just carrying that out to the way it's supposed to be carried out, a healthy church is going to do what? Produce healthy disciples and more of them. You just can't get around that. You can't get around that. 
Deciding to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified brings results. Simple message, powerful message, plain message. We can make it vague and we can have people walking out of here going, what did he really say? Jesus Christ and him crucified. The fact that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins so that I can be saved. There's nothing I need to do except say, okay, I will receive that. Very simple. It's fulfilling God's given assignment for us here, big or small. Church finds its success in doing what it is God has called us to do as individuals and then as a corporate body of believers. We can't escape the fact that healthy trees produce more healthy fruit. Growth and multiplication always happen in healthy churches. It is just a given fact. To whatever size God has decided to make churches, that's the way it works. And that is for us as well. Why? Because healthy churches are outward-focused churches. Outward-focused churches, driven by vision which God gives to the leadership of the church. Healthy disciples make healthy disciples. I told you last week it wasn't going to be tough. I'm not going to come with something complicated and brand new. It's just a reminder of what we ought to already know. Healthy disciples make healthy disciples. Healthy leadership in a church develops healthy disciples who then in turn make healthy disciples. See, Paul's goal was always for healthy churches everywhere Paul went. This was the problem with the Corinthian church. They weren't a healthy church. He didn't go to Corinth with some fancy technique with the next new thing or a sales pitch with his vacuum cleaner tucked under his arm and said, look it, I've got a new gig for you, here's the deal. That's not what he did. He went in the power of the Holy Spirit because that's where he was called to go, but it wasn't an easy thing for him to do. It was not the easiest thing in the world. He was stepping into a culture which he didn't really understand, which had no real use for the exclusive claims of the gospel because they believed anything and everything. Every single corner in Corinth had a temple to some different God that you could worship for any different reason at all. And in comes this little man with a simple message, but with the second thing going on as a human being. It shows us a bit of his human side that we learned in August as well. Verse 3 in chapter 2, And I was with you in what? Weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is the guy that gave us half of the New Testament. And if we're, we read too quick, we miss the fact that he wasn't some superhuman dude. He was in weakness. And he was afraid. And he was afraid to the point where he was shaking. But I'm going to go nonetheless with the simple message of the gospel that says, Jesus Christ, him crucified, power of God. Listen, he was stepping into a new thing. Any of us that step into a new thing and a new place are going to be unsettled. Because that new place, as I've said for you in the last couple of weeks, didn't look and didn't like the things which challenged how they had always thought and how they always did things. It's the problem that everybody has had down through the ages. We don't like to be challenged with the way in which we've always done things, especially if they've worked, kind of, but probably not. So we have to be careful to listen to that. Listen, bringing countercultural message is always an unsettling thing. You're going to step out into the world, outside of this building, and talk to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't believe Jesus. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, and, and you don't believe in him, it's a weird thing. It's a weird message. And it's unsettling when you step outside of this building to engage the community with the message of the gospel. 
bringing that countercultural message is always unsettling. I remember Bag from last week. I give you the tail end of that quote. Until we are prepared to be thought foolish in the eyes of the world, it is unlikely we will know the power of God being displayed in our lives and ministries. Hold the line. Don't go way above the line and get weird. Okay, and do all kinds of strange things because this is just how we think we can operate. Don't go below the line and water down the gospel message. Hold the line. The simple message of Jesus Christ, him crucified. That's what we're called to do. So don't go start in a ministry tomorrow called Jerks for Jesus where we're going to go out and we're going to think we're being persecuted because of the way in which we're operating within our community. Now, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also very serious. We tend to forget the grace of God when we are dealing with people who do not know who Jesus is. The church is known, whether we like it or not, for more often than not being graceless when it comes to engaging a world who doesn't know who Jesus is. So we have to be careful not to be that way. If somebody doesn't like you because you have started that ministry, Jerks for Jesus, it's probably because you're a jerk, and it probably has nothing to do with Jesus. And I I say that again not to be unkind. I learned the hard way as well. As a young man, I would witness to people, and I would look right down my nose because I had the answers for every question they ever thought they had and didn't have. I was a jerk, and not a whole lot of people wanted to listen to what I had to say. We have to be careful not to do that. We learned back in August that Paul was not some spiritual superman. Somehow above being afraid, somehow above being unsettled in all of these things by change and everything that the Lord was throwing at him. These things he knew were inherent in ministry and they still unsettled him, but he went everywhere he was supposed to go and he did so in the love of Christ. And what we learned was that he knew how to manage every single one of these changes in his life. And listen to this because we're going to learn this in a minute as we get into the next verse. He knew how to manage all of these things in his life in light of who led him. He understood that if God called him, the Holy Spirit would empower him if he was obedient to do the simple things. Just go and tell people that Jesus loves them. And he has a wonderful plan for their life. (laughs) If we can land there, we're doing well. Obedience to the call of God doesn't promise ease. And that's a mistake we've made, mostly in our Western culture, that if we come to Jesus, we are promised everything from Cadillacs to cars, other houses, all kinds of good things. We're never sick. We're never any of this stuff. These are the things we're promised when we're called to Jesus. That's the mainstream message of the gospel. And God never promises any of those things to us. In fact, he doesn't even go so far as to tell us we won't suffer and we won't struggle and we won't be persecuted and we won't suffer discomfort. In fact, he promises those things are going to happen at some level in our life. But we are promised peace and we are promised protection through all of that if we rest in what Christ has for us in the midst of it all. You see, this is something that we wrestle with as individuals. You think that through. In your walk with Jesus, if you have a relationship with him, you think that through. Do you wrestle with that every day? I do. I have to work that out in the midst of the things that I struggle with. And then we have to do that as a corporate body, as a church as well. What is God calling us to, whether it's uncomfortable or not? If that's the direction he's calling us to go, he will provide a way for us to be able to do what it is he's asking. And as we look to build into the next generation of young people, we must be prepared to engage our world with the gospel, doing so in a way that shows the love of God 
in Christ. Now let's say that very slowly again. We have to do so in a way that shows the love of God in Christ, even if we're unsettled in doing so. Meet people where they're at. If we're going to be honest, it's difficult to stand alone in a culture which demands the absolute submission to its way of thinking. And let's not lie to ourselves or one another. It is very difficult to hold the line in a culture that is as mean and vitriolic as it is. Wouldn't it be nice just for once to see people sitting around a table talking like human beings to one another? Instead of just firing off insult after insult after insult, feeling good about themselves. It's unsettling for us to step into that type of realm and say, okay, Lord, how do you want to use me to somehow show Jesus to people? How do you want to do that? And then help me to have the gumption and the courage to step in to do that because I'm a little bit uneasy right now with the crowd I'm looking at. You see, Paul stepped into the arena, and you need to remember this, in Corinth, he stepped into the arena of ideas and idols. And he didn't hide himself away in the hopes that the culture would walk through his front door. He set up shop as a tent maker. That's what he did. Anybody who's read their Bible knows that Paul was a tent maker. He set up shop as a tent making evangelist in Corinth with one message as he fixed tents for people. Jesus, Christ, and him crucified. Somebody buy me a one string banjo. I am going to pluck that until the day you fire me or the day the Lord takes me home. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message. We play the same tune everywhere we go, but where we play it and how we play it may change. But that we play it is important. You see, in Corinth, what Paul was dealing with was a whole new thing. That's why he was afraid. That's why he was unsettled. Most commentators put him there right around 51 or 52 AD. Okay? So if you want to do your study, you want, to, you want to Google it and Wikipedia it to see if I'm right, please do so. But it was right around 51 or 52 AD, right about the time of the Isthmus Games that were being taken place in Corinth as the precursor to the Olympics that, that we know of. So the city was absolutely full of athletes who had spent their entire life in training also they could run a race, wrestle, or do whatever for a crown. Now, if you read the Corinthian letter, you'll see that theme come up as well for good reason because that's what Paul is seeing all around. And that's what he was dealing with right then and there. And they weren't put up in the downtown Corinth Hyatt Hotel. They didn't have those then. Do you know where all of these people were? Spread out throughout the city, all over the place? They were living in, guess what, of all things, tents. Go figure. They would set their tent up and that would be their home. So Paul set up shop right in the midst of that broke out his sewing needle and hung out his tent maker sign and he went to work right in the midst of the culture being faithfully present within where God had set him down. He didn't go rent a storefront and a coffee shop. Not there's anything wrong with that, especially if it's Ethiopian coffee, fresh ground. I like that, by the way, black, no sugar. Just saying. But he parked himself right smack in the midst of everything that was going on. Unlike the traveling salesman of his day, he simply allowed the Holy Spirit to gift him and anoint his words for each and every person that showed up on his doorstep so he was faithful to preach the simple message of salvation even though he was afraid repairing somebody's tent. So he was busy working with his hands at the same time he was engaging the culture using all of the gifts that God gave him. 
That God in Jesus of Nazareth has reconciled the world to himself, alone in a crowd, not neatly tucked away in safety, but in the midst of everything that's going on. He preached all of this, Jesus and him crucified. That's it. No big signs telling everybody they were destined for hell if they didn't turn and repent at this moment. No, none of that. No screaming and yelling at everybody there on the street corner that they were all a bunch of dirty, rotten pagans and a bunch of no good, this, that, and the other thing. If you don't accept this Jesus, you're going to go straight to hell. And he didn't protest sacrifices over here. He didn't protest the fact that most of the men, more than likely, were scantily clad as well as the women. He didn't run a protest up the flagpole. He parked himself right where he was. And he preached about a Jewish carpenter crucified by the Romans, but now risen from the dead and ascended into heaven as Savior and King, declaring to everybody there with an earshot that Jesus is King and Caesar is not. Jesus is King and Caesar is not. Now, as an aside, and I want this as a reminder for us all I have right here, this is the primary reason as to why the Holy Spirit is given, to bear witness to the truth, not so that you can be full with all kinds of gifts, That's not to say that the gifts aren't important. But the Holy Spirit is given so that we have the ability to bear witness to this truth. Read your Bibles. Don't trust that what I'm saying is correct. Read your Bibles, because that's what the Bible tells us. Look in Corinthians, look in Acts 1. See, a healthy church will operate in the gifts, because the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the edification of the body. But that's never the primary reason why we should seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the gifts. So back to Paul. If we're honest with ourselves, and I want you to be, you have to be. I have to be. I shared with somebody this morning, this may bother you for the 40 minutes that I'm speaking to you. I live in this all week. Okay? So I'm convicted multiple times over and over and over again about where I'm missing the mark as I write this and I research this. All right? But a healthy church will always operate in the gifts. If we're honest, we're going to be fearful and trembling in the midst of Main Street. Don't lie to yourselves, don't lie to anybody else. If we are honest with ourselves, we are going to be fearful and trembling in the midst of Main Street to bring such a narrow and closed-minded message to a world that lives the way it does. If you think you would never be afraid, and if you insist you have never been afraid, I will say to you, very kindly and very lovingly, you better check your pride. Because everybody is afraid at some point. Especially if we are following the leading of the Holy Spirit. I have been reading and I have been studying the scriptures for over 32 years. And I have been before thousands of people in that span of 32 years. And I am always a little bit nervous no matter how prepared I am in speaking about Jesus. I said last week that I've been to college campuses Sometimes they're friendly. Sometimes they're not all that friendly. Put in a room with college-age students who know absolutely nothing about the scriptures, and some of them are kind of antagonistic towards the gospel. I'm a little bit nervous about that. But if that's the pulpit that Jesus gives me, then that's the pulpit that I'm going to speak from because it's an opportunity in fear and trembling. I'm always confident in Christ if that's where he's put me to be. 
And I want to challenge you to bring yourself to that place where if you're called to do something and you're called to be somewhere, be confident that Christ has called you to do so. It's not going to take away your fear. It's not going to take away the fact that you might be a little shaky on Tuesday morning when you got to go talk to Steve at the coffee counter because you're really feeling the Lord wants you to just ask how he's doing and if you can pray for him. But he will give you the ability to step in and do what it is we're supposed to do. More often than not, it's with fear and trembling that I step before a crowd and I begin to bring the message, most especially in places like colleges where I get these responses. You mean to tell me you believe in that fairy tale stuff? I've had that asked of me. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, and then, and then, then the all-famous one is always good. I thought you were smart. Well... I guess that's debatable too, but the reality is, is I understand that dead people don't rise, but guess what? Uh, this Jesus, it seems, did. And we have historical evidence that, that shows that that's probably more the case than not. So yeah, I'm going to hold on to that until you can, until you can teach me otherwise. Because have you ever read the scriptures? Well, no, I haven't, but you can't be serious. How ignorant and backwards can you be to believe a book that's 2,000 years old? I don't know. I guess pretty ignorant and pretty backwards, but the reality is, is if I look at the world in relation to what this book tells me, this book's got a lot better answers than what the world keeps serving up. Tells me where I come from, tells me where I'm going, gives me a purpose, and it helps me understand who empowers me to do the things I'm supposed to do. So, yeah, maybe I am a little bit ignorant and backwards, and maybe I'm not quite as smart as people think I am, but I am what I am. And you are who you are. And the confidence that comes from knowing Jesus is very important for us. Think for a minute of those people in your lives. If you've got a pen, I want you to pull it out. If you don't, steal one from your neighbor. Ask for forgiveness after. Seriously, I want you to think for a minute of those types of people in your lives who kind of question what it is you believe and kind of push your buttons. I want you to take a moment and I want you to write their names down. I don't want you to share them with anybody. I want you to write that name down. Put it on your phone, on your notepad, whatever you have available to you. That's what I want you to do. I mean, let's put some wheels to what it is we're learning here. Begin to pray for that person or those people. And you ask God how he can use you in their lives. No matter how unsettled it might make you. Ask him how it is he can use you in their lives and for an opportunity to share why you believe what you believe. That's my challenge to you. I challenge myself with the same thing, so don't think I'm giving you homework as an assignment and not taking it on myself. Pray specific prayers for specific people. You've got that one person, maybe two people in your lives that you just really are drawn to or you're really struggling with. You write that name down. You begin to pray for that person and how it is the Lord can use you. How is it Jesus wants to use you beyond these walls I don't like it when people say it to me but I share it with you at some point in our Christian walk we need to understand that we become educated beyond our obedience and we have to ask ourselves am I doing what it is I'm supposed to Lord in relation to what it is you're giving me we don't want to just be here on Sundays getting what it is we need, although that is important too. But outside of this place, how are we impacting the community for Jesus and the gifts that God has given me? Now, I'm not telling everybody to be a Billy Graham. 
Okay, what I'm saying is that whatever you're gifted in, you do it to the glory of God, to the best of your ability. And you be the best employee you can be. You be the best whatever it is God has gifted you to do, to be. So that when people see you, they understand that you're driven in that way to honor God and to glorify Him every day. That then will help them ask the question, why are you the way you are? You see, this is part of one of the purposes of the gifts that God gives us for the equipping of the saints and for preparing us for ministry, building up the body of Christ. That's Ephesians 4. We talked about that. See, this is how Paul functioned everywhere he went, but he didn't do so in his own strength. He did so in the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. I promise I'm going to park this at some point. But I think this is important for us to understand. All of us here, if you belong to Jesus, are called to missions. Don't get panicked, don't pack your bags, and don't ask if the Lord's going to send you to Timbuktu. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. All of us are called to missions. But the reality is, is 95% of us are called to work right here on the local mission field. In some ways, it's a lot easier to get funding and pack your bags and take off somewhere else, isn't it? But 95% of us are called to be right here. It's a daunting and frightening task, one in which we stand counter to our culture in love. In love. Not in anger, not in meanness, not in frustration, but in love. And declare the simple message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that He died for you, that He loves you, that He made a way home so that we can encounter the Father once again. It is into this that we are called to live. It is into this that we are called to love. And it is into this that we are called to serve. And that's where it starts to get hard. This is why we are given the Holy Spirit. This is why God gifts the church in so many different ways. See, last week we learned once again that in all of our own strength, what happens? We fail. I fail. I'm a broken clay pot or a cracked pot, as some people like to tell me. But that's okay. I pastor a people who are the same way. And I'm okay with that. Because God uses broken clay pots to touch a world that is in desperate need of him. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, our theme for 2019, and Acts 1 are our marching orders and the means by which we fulfill these. So see, I told you I'm going to wrap it up. Number three, number one, he kept it simple. Number two, he did so even though he was afraid. He operated within everything that was going on. And lastly, the means and the power by which he was able to do all those things is found in 1 Corinthians 2, 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, with respect, not some freak show where you got some guy up on the stage whipping his jacket around, smacking everybody in the head, going, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. The power that is talked about here, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, is when you speak to somebody and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and their heart is softened in order that they can hear the truth of the gospel that Jesus died for them and that he has something for them that is dynamically better than anything this world could ever offer. That's the power. The power to look at a dead person walking in this world in absolute sin with no desire whatsoever to have an understanding of who the creator God is 
The Holy Spirit comes upon them and all of a sudden, tell me about this Jesus. For that moment, their heart softened. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Step into that relationship and say, okay, I don't have all the answers, whoever you are, Jesus, but I want to know more. That's the power. Not some freak show that gets put up on YouTube so everybody goes, hey, look at that. That's not what's going on here. That's not at all what's going on here. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. One of the problems with the Corinthians was that they seemed to be all about the bells and the whistles. They loved the philosophers who came and just filled them full of nonsense because it never challenged them to be different than what they were. It never said that this is the way you are and this is the way you need to be, so make a conscious effort in and through Jesus to get over here. They would come in and they would give you reasons as to why it was you could be the way you were and all of that kind of nonsense. No, it was not at all. What they were giving was not what Paul was giving. What Paul was giving was the transformative power of God in their lives. When you come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms you from within. And he gives you the ability to do what it is we're supposed to do as broken clay pots. And then we go out into the world and say, yep, you know, I don't have it all together, but Jesus loves you and he loves me. And if he accepted me, goodness knows he'll accept you because I know how bad I was. See, here comes this little Jewish rabbi, Paul, who had begun to turn the entire known world upside down and on its ear, yet it seems was not the best of public speakers. So it wasn't even his gifting to talk to people. He says here, in challenging the same church in 2 Corinthians, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I'm unskilled in speaking. So all these people who are selling you all of this stuff, I don't have a real fancy message. I'm not even that good at talking. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. In every way we have made this plain to you in all things, that in Christ the world has been reconciled back to God. And if you step into a relationship with him, your life will change. He preaches and he teaches for the purpose of making sure our hearts would be in the right place at the right time so that we can worship properly and so that we can engage the unbelieving world in the correct way that brings glory to Jesus our King and God our Father. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised from the dead, ascended on high. It's all we got. It's all we've got. In the midst of all of that, we find the gifts that God has given to the church are for the mutual edification of all of us gathered here. That's what the gifts are for. And this is why I've taken two weeks to get us to this point so we can dig into the gifts, so we understand the purpose behind what they are for, for the mutual edification of the church and to drive us to want, for his sake, to reach the world and our own little sphere of influence. And it is in this context that we see the gifts as a means to an end. And we're going to expand on that next week because the gifts are not an end themselves. Too many times we come to God in order to get, which makes God's a means to an end. As the worship team comes up, if you remember nothing of what I've said today, God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, He is the end. He is the beginning. He is our all in all. He is all we need. And out of that, everything else flows. So I want to challenge you to be seeking the Lord this week. To be asking him how all these things are working out. 
Let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves before the throne so that we can grow together, not just as individuals, but as a church. How, Lord, can you move me one more step to be what it is you've called me to be through the power of your Holy Spirit? What gifts do you have that you want me to be using within the body of believers that you've set me down in? What do those look like? And help me to be courageous in the Holy Spirit to step into those things. Why don't we stand as the prayer people and the teams can come up? If you would, please. I don't really know where this finds anybody. I know where it finds me. And I know that I've had to wrestle before the Lord for the better part of the week on what it is He has for me to do. What specific gift and calling He's put on my life that I need to focus on, that I need to grow in. You know where this finds you. If, you're, if you just need to engage with somebody in prayer, that the Lord would help you, to encourage you, to embolden you. There are folks in the back and there's folks up front. For those of you who are here every week, you know that. But for those of you who are just here for the first time, we have people that are willing to pray with you. It's nothing more than joining together and saying, okay, Lord, I I just need some help. Every one of us are on the same page. That's the beauty about Jesus. Father, wherever this finds us, I just I'd leave it in your care. As we close in this one last song, I just simply pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts, Lord. As we sing to you, if we are in need of prayer, that we would step out, that we would have a boldness about us, Lord, that would help us to just step out. And if we can't, remind us that that's okay too, but help us to just confess right where we are what it is we need to leave before you and ask that you would meet us where we're at. And that you would begin to work in us right there so that we can take that next step. Each and every one of us are in a different place. We're gifted in different areas and we're broken in different areas. But we were created for your good purposes, Lord, so I pray that you would help us to step into those things. Ask all of this in Jesus' name. Jake.